Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. Uh, this is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Katie Hindmarch-Watson about serving a wired world, London's telecommunication workers, and the making of an information capital. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's really exciting to be here. Uh, and I am incredibly excited to be uh, discussing Serving a Wired World, which, uh, like all good history books, is you know theoretically informed, is a fascinating kind of, you know, history of uh, technology, um, history of a city, you know, urban history, and has got, you know, a massive sex scandal right in the middle of it, which just, you know, is a, a kind of another wonderful uh, sort of layer to, uh, to to the story that the book is uh, is trying to tell. And, and that's probably the place to start, really, is um, what is the story the book is trying to tell, and particularly what is the story of telecommunications workers and, and why, I suppose, did you want to write um, a book about telecoms workers? Well, in a way, it really all started with this sex scandal. Um, in 1889, a bunch of telegraph boys were busted moonlighting as rent boys, as, as male prostitutes at a house of assignation brothel um, just off Tottenham Court Road. And uh, the Telegraph Boys' uh, clients in this space were were wealthy men. Um, Now, I was certainly far from the first person to look at this scandal. It's called the Cleveland Street Scandal. And it's actually been looked at um, by, uh, you know, gay and lesbian, now what might say queer historians since the 70s. But no one really looked at it from the Telegraph Boys' perspective. So I kind of went back to this old scandal and I wanted to say, well, what, what, what impact did the Telegraph Boys have? How did they get involved? How, how did they get caught? And, and what I uncovered was uh, a much larger story about the symbolic worth of Telegraph Boys, but also uh, Victorian and Edwardian telecommunication workers writ large, how they have really interesting symbolic worth, but also very, um, very tenuous social and economic worth. And so I, I got interested in the work of information mediation. So these telegraph boys, and then I looked at telegraphists, and then finally telephone operators, because we have, you know, telephone switchboards up and running by the turn of the 20th century. And I was interested to figure out what it meant to be the conduit of, the, of other people's information in this particular period. And so the book is ultimately really that story. It's a story about the work of producing information for others. It's also a story about, about place, um, about, um, I, th- I think you call it quite early on in, in the book, uh, telegraphic uh, London. And, and it'd be interesting to hear a bit about, um, I suppose, the, the Londonness of the story, particularly um, as, as you identify that kind of Victorian moment when, um, it becomes a, a, a telegraphic city. Mm. Yeah, and actually, it, you know, you really can make a case for London being the telegraphic city of the 19th century. It's not just, you know, London's size and, and, and London's in sort of imperial 
um, heft. Um, it is the hub of a global uh, telecommunications network. There's more um, telegraph cables. I, I mean, the, the, the majority of the world's telegraph cables are being made in London. So on that very sort of physical infrastructure level, that's happening. And then um, London's uh, telegraph system um, becomes the sort of most expansive and the most sophisticated. And while a lot of, um, you know, by the latter half of the 19th century, we have, um, you know, telegraph cables across the oceans. We have um, North America hooked up to uh, the British Isles. Um, a lot of that was done through private um, companies, but a lot of it was done with a lot of British money. And so you have sort of the imperial and, and commercial might of the British Empire concentrating and sort of manifesting in London's um, uh, very, very central role in, in the dissemination and production and movement of electric information in this period. And you also have you know, the growth of a number of different telegraph offices um, in Great Britain, telegraphy and eventually the telephone are gonna be part of the post office. And the post office, in Britain is already quite a substantial sort of juggernaut um, with a with a, a noticeable presence um, in the capital, but also elsewhere. And and so the telegraph comes incorporated into this 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 world of efficient information transfer. Um, but there's one interesting thing about the London story is that in London and in other major urban cities, uh, the telegraph wires. What, once the state takes over the system, the telegraph wires themselves go underground um, in order to have less clutter on, in terms of the skyline. And the argument was that the, the wires would be better protected underground. And so you have this um, a system where the, the technology is invisible and the last vestiges of it are, in, in some sense, the workers. So these, these telegraph boys, in a way, kind of stand for this underground um, ubiquitous but invisible system. I mean, you, you mentioned the boys, but um, uh, not to sound too flippant, but it's also a story about the girls as well. Uh, oh, yeah. And, yeah. you know, the, the, the visibility thing is is particularly interesting because um, just as, you know, the wires are going underground, there's this question of the visibility of women in um, Victorian and, and, and then later in, in Edwardian city spaces uh, mm-hmm. in London. And I mean, some of this in the book is just like absolutely hilarious. These kind of, you know, worries about um, sort of women's roles in, um, you know, having to be home at certain times and, you know, the the night economy not being, you know, literally not being fit for a woman to be part of in the context of, yeah, you know, rent boys and sex scandals and all this kind of stuff. But also actually in terms of how things like um, offices are organised. And I suppose... The, the way to, to dig into this, and, and, and you do this quite early in the book, is just to think about gender in terms of the, the, the status of the occupation, the, the status of the job, and, and how people kind of viewed um, what it was to be a telegraph worker. Interestingly, um, the, the service in some ways was sold uh, in, in, in certain ways on, through the idea of, of women's labor. So, uh, and that works on a, on a few different levels. Um, Interestingly, women never outnumbered men in terms of telegraph operators in, in the United Kingdom. Um, there was a brief moment where there were, there were uh, about 200 more 
women telegraphists in London central office than there were men, but those numbers quickly reversed. Um, a number of, of different historians and um, literary critics have, have noted that uh, Victorians had an interesting idea about how women were particularly sensitive, but particularly not quite passive, but perhaps impassive conduits of information. And in other words, um, telegraphy was considered a, a sort of a suitable job for a respectable woman to perform because she wouldn't, she would be very adept at, at transferring the information of others. She would have these delicate fingers that could do the work of telegraphy, but she wouldn't put much of her imprint on it. And that's important in a society that really, really values privacy as a, you know, a key virtue of the 19th century liberal British state. Um, there's that aspect to it. And so, and on the same time, you can pay women a third sometimes a quarter, what you would pay a male telegraphist. And this is at the moment where telegraphy becomes a state enterprise, um, which means in, in some ways uh, there's a new relationship with taxpayers. And so women are seen as a cheap and particularly effective and a particularly inobtrusive new component of this, this information branch of the civil service. And of course, women telegraphists are the first women to join the British civil service. And, 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 and they're sort of the vanguard of this pink collar um, government labor. And one of the things I argue is that actually women entering the civil service combined with a bunch of other new and ever sort of lowercase jobs in the civil service it's the beginning of a process where the very idea of civil service itself shifts out of a what you might think of an 18th century world of, of civic virtue and humanism and into the idea of a civil servant as very much a, a servant, which, which almost is conflating the idea of domestic service with um, working um, at, you know, for the state. And I think that that has real impacts in terms of how telegraphists um, think of themselves as, as professionals or laborers, how they organize, all of that stuff. And but it's a, but it's also it's interesting at the same time that women in telegraph offices are happening at exactly that moment where uh, respectable middle class women are becoming more ubiquitous, um, walking by themselves in certain parts of the city that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to do. Um, so they're both very symbolic of this of this these shifting. Um, gender dynamics of the late 19th century, um, but they're also uh, involved in, a, in a, a long-term process of fundamentally changing what the civil service means and what it's worth. I mean, the, the other thing, picking up on uh, what, what you were saying around, I guess, you know, kind of questions of respectability and, you know, uh, we'll see this when we talk about um, telephones, actually, particularly the idea that women could be trusted to hear what was being said and to make yeah. and stuff like this. But is on a fundamental level, we're talking about Victorian England, so we mustn't forget that women are not to be trusted. Uh, and, you know, a couple of things stood out. I, I think one of the lines I picked out was was the idea that, you know, well, there were worries about, you know, what if women's fingers were sort of temperamental when, mm -hmm. you know, they're involved in uh, telegraph operations and, and then, you know, th these questions of how to, to organise an office. Um, and I wonder if you, you could sort of talk me through the, this idea of, of the central office, because as you said, you know, the transformation of the civil service and, you know, the, this influx of, uh, of women civil servants for the first time, but also, I guess, the rise of the idea of 
almost a modern office, you know, yeah. a kind of set of almost modern office spaces, but are still, you know, incredibly gendered. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's that's so funny with the work of telegraphy is is deeply gendered. I, you know, I mentioned the one of the ways that women were thought particularly, at, you know, adept at telegraphy was the delicacy of their fingers, but this delicate finger was also a liability. Um, the controller of the Central Telegraph Office, Henry Fisher, thought that uh, the relative strength one tapped one's telegraph key with was indicative of how far that signal would eventually go, right? So a really well hard tapped signal would have a better chance of getting to its far flung destination. And he thought that women didn't have enough heft to get to Berlin or Paris or New York. And, uh, and as a consequence, the women were in charge of uh, local, like so, the, so metropolitan lines, the, the London lines, and closer provincial lines, and 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 Fisher wasn't even sure if women could tap their way to Manchester or Leeds. That was he wasn't sure about that, and so that that creates right there that creates particularly gendered demands on a workforce. Um, women it, uh, were also given the uh, older or more antiquated. Um, t- uh, telegraph machines, um, telegraph instruments, I should say, um, when you have newer technology coming in, the guys would tend to get them. Um, and there was a sort of a, a different types of prestige was associated to different kinds of telegraph work. And the more prestigious lines, the international lines, commerce, sports, men were given those particular, uh, you know, those particular lines and routes and women tended to be put on again the sort of local and the provincial and so you have this incredibly in a way so it's so predictably victorian but kind of sort of mind-boggling uh site of 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 the production of gender within the central office itself and this also means you have you know mostly women galleries they call them these telegraph instrument galleries so you'd have the, the metropolitan and a provincial gallery dominated by women and then you'd have some offices that were mixed um sex and then you would have uh, you know, uh, international news, um, uh, horse racing, whatever, that's completely dominated by guys. And so it, there's, it, it's, it's uh, and so um, depending on what floor you were on and what particular lines you would be in charge of, you would, you would have different kinds of uh, micro work cultures within that central office. And, and the central office was highly gendered. There was uh, the, the, the men telegraphists were very, there, there was a lot of mixed feelings about w- whether women were an asset or a detriment to their own uh, ideals of professionalism. And um, for some, then they actually liked like, hey, that's great. You guys can work those lines, those, those, those the metropolitan and provincial lines. That gives us more time to, to you know, to develop our skills on the, these new newfangled machines. Um, others were very, very hostile to women and saw that women were fundamentally uh, undercutting the uh, respectable professionalism of the trade, that women weren't as fast as men, that women were um, uh, in, in a way, uh, you know, not not doing as much work as they should be because they were not given all of these um, more busy lines, and so so there was there was tensions, but there was also solidarity. So there, so you you have a, a real split, and by the early twentieth century, uh, you you do have a kind of reconciliation between in London anyway between men and women in these offices as they as they finally begin to organize more or less as a unit. I suppose the um, twin track of 
maybe we wouldn't put it as strongly as kind of, you know, progress and, and, and then reaction is something that comes up again and again um, as a, you know, not just kind of purely sort of Victorian uh, phenomenon. And indeed, it's it's sort of with us today, but but it's something that really, you know, strongly characterises that, that era. And, you know, if we talked about the women, the story of the boys is a classic kind of Victorian progress slash degeneration and end of civilization uh, story. And you you mentioned at the start, you know, the the West End scandal had been told, you know, quite a few times and and, and the rise of, um, you know, kind of queer histories of um, of that moment. But what's, I guess, the kind of um, the history of technology and the kind of, you know, the story of the sort of liberal subjectivity of, of Telegraph London? Um, going on with this uh, this sexual scandal? Oh, well, um, one of the most interesting aspects to it, I think, is it's actually at heart, it's a sort of, it's a struggle between uh, the right to privacy and the duty of public revelation. Um, and it's a, a scandal that was actually first uncovered by a wing of the post office police that actually still exists to this day. Um, uh, so the post office has long had its own internal policing branch. It used to be called the missing letter branch. And by 1889, it's called the confidential inquiry branch. And this is a service that's meant to, you know, monitor post office workers. Um, and it's, growing and growing and growing, but sort of quietly so and under the radar. It was initially targeted to make sure that that money doesn't go missing as it's passed through the post office. Uh, And increasingly starts targeting unions or the the unionizing processes within the post office. And it grows in response to constantly having to deal with outbreaks of telegraph boy prostitution. There was in in 1877, or sorry, 1875, 76, another big ring of telegraph boy prostitution was uncovered at the post office. And this triggered, again, an expansion of this clandestine service. By 1889, um, when the first telegraph boy is rounded up, um, he's rounded up by a post office constable. And post office constables... um, paid, I mean, the post office paid to track down the brothel owner. Um, it was the post office uh, police that really pushed this scandal. Um, and it became something that uh, ultimately challenged the sanctity of a certain very elite case of men's right to their own privacy. And this is the thing, it's an interesting, you know, from a modern uh, perspective, it's, it's, it's sort of an interesting tale because on the one hand, um, you have, uh, I think, some sympathy to sort of the liberal reformers' narratives around the Cleveland Street scandal. It's like, how do these elite aristocratic men get away with uh, gross indecency and, and telegraph boys are the ones, you know, facing charges and being, and being, and being rounded up? And so that was, that was the sort of liberal narrative that this is, this is the, you know, old, uh, it's an ancient regime debauchery enacted on modern civil servants. And, you know, the state has every right to unveil this and show this um, for what it is. But at the same time, it's also interestingly mirrors um, the damage that a telegraphist or a telephone operator or a telegraph boy could do um, on a symbolic 
or and, and often very real level, if you divulge the information of others, if you open that telegram, if you open that letter, if you are paying attention to the information that you are meant to be conveying, um, what and, and, and so it's also this really interesting way that the telegraph boys are the ones who spill the beans. They reveal their elite customers' secrets. And, um, and, it, and it sort of captures that, I, to me, that captures this sort of really interesting tension um, between the, the sanctity of privacy and the, um, the uh, Victorian ideal modernity that their telegraph system is supposed to represent. Yeah, and it's funny. Um, it, it, I mean, as with all of these Victorian moments, it's it's hard not to sort of raise a sort of slightly disbelieving smile at some of them. But you know, their response to to, to these scandals is, you know, essentially, well, how do we deal with um, you know with the telegraph service on the one hand, but also you know later that um, becomes, I guess, a kind of you know technological response with, with the rise of the telephone. And unfortunately for the Victorians, and, and this again, you know, sounds kind of flippant, but, you know, as the shift into the Edwardian period happens, the book chronicles the way that, you know, the boys were basically, you know, thought of as, well, we need to make sure that, you know, they're fit and healthy, mm. you know, they're of a kind of a, a better stock, a better standing. Um, and this, you know, parallels a lot of kind of concerns that were going on around, you know, say the British Army. Um, you know, lots of kind of broader, almost, I guess, you know, kind of uh, eugenic or demographic concerns about the, uh, you know, the stock of, of, of the British population uh, during this period. And, and this, I guess, kind of, you know, militarization uh, of, of, of the service is, is particularly interesting. We, we could be jokey and say, you know, how do they respond to a sex scandal? Well, they give them, you know, quite nice military uniforms and teach them all to, to, to go boxing or whatever, which you know might be quite sort of appealing um, to a certain up, upper Indeed. class. Yes. Um, but at the same time, there is a story about the kind of militarization of the service um, mm-hmm. in order to kind of not professionalize it, but yeah, to, to bring a kind of Edwardian modernity to it. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the uh, this is imperial anxieties uh, manifest in a now you know much more physically fit, well dressed, hyper monitored telegraph boy. I mean, and this is the sort of the you know the the moment of imperial anxiety and new liberalism, where both reactionary and progressive forces coalesce in a much more interventionist set of policies. Obviously, this is this is sort of on a state level, but you can just see all that playing out on these telegraph boys. And you have, you know, overt eugenicist fitness instructors coming in. Um, you have military parades. You have them training with um, actual guns, um, unloaded guns, except, of course, in the Irish cities. Uh, in Dublin and Cork, the telegraph boys had to march around with broomsticks, not guns. Um, so, again, so there's an interesting regional disparity right yeah. there. Um, yeah. <laughs> which I also just the image of that is just it's it's so priceless um, but uh, yeah and I mean and, and and this is a story that yeah you know this is something that historians have have looked at from a lot of different angles and also how these sort of these imperial anxieties about a deteriorating anglo-saxon body um, 
how that, you know, we obviously the Boer War is always being, you know, a, a key sort of watershed in, in, in this discussion. But the Telegraph Boys have actually been involved in this process really since the 18, since, since really the, that moment after the Cleveland Street scandal. I mean, they're briefly disallowed from continuing on as a postman after careers as Telegraph Boys. With they, they, there was a brief period where Telegraph Boys had to serve in the Army or the Armed Forces before then being readmitted back to the post office um, to continue their careers. Um, and that was short-lived because it was so unpopular. Excuse me, but... Um, but again, this this conflict, this sort of militarized. I mean, I, you know, I, I think I, I talk talk about telegraph boys turning into martial mercuries. Um, that the performance of this kind of uh, quasi pseudo uh, military force was also a big component of the late Victorian and Edwardian imperial capital. Um, you know, the marching, well drilled telegraph boy. Uh, became uh, an aspect of of uh, you know Edwardian London um, and uh, and symbolic of what administrators envisioned as uh, patriotic, uh, respectable, and docile working class, ready to go serve the empire if necessary. What about the telephone? Because in in some ways, you know. We could tell, I guess, a kind of a story of, you know, discontinuity, you know, one of those classic, the telephone comes in and, you know, uh, sending telegraphs days are, are, are all of a sudden numbered. But actually, partially because of the story of kind of, you know, liberal subjectivity that you're you're, you're trying to tell, but, but also because I think of the really obvious um, connections with questions of, of gender that we've already talked about. You know, the, the telephone, there's a lot of, I guess, kind of continuity um, that comes in, particularly over these questions of kind of privacy, being respectable, uh, you know, who, who is the right sort to be connecting communications, possibly listening in, and, and also possibly kind of, you know, at, at risk of selling stories uh, of, of, you know, various kind of, again, mm-hmm. you know, uh, if not salacious, but, you know, in some way kind of scandalous uh, information. And, and this is, and it's also tied to the, to the class politics around telecommunications in this period, um, because, I mean, one of the reasons why the, why the telephone doesn't just come in and replace uh, the telegraph is because telephones are incredibly expensive technologies um, at the outset of their, um, you know, implementation. Um, they, uh, uh, I believe an annual subscription um, was 20 pounds uh, for a telephone line. And that is a lot of money in that period. So what you'd end up having is very, very affluent um, telephone users. And they have to have a direct contact with a switchboard operator at this point. We don't have automatic telephone you know, switchboards yet. And so you actually have, you know, you have, um, aspiring women dealing with often with very affluent, mostly male um, customers, and this is a this is a world where we can't forget that this is a world where servants are ubiquitous. If you are middle class and up, you are used to having um, uh, servants around you, and mostly used to having young women around you as subservient um, orderlies to do your bidding, and that's exactly the the dynamics that break out in the telephone now. But there's a real hostility and there's a real kind of misogyny that, that, that a lot of telephone operators describe being called all kinds of names, being accused exactly of listening in, of deliberately messing up calls, 
um, of or of not paying attention. You're either you're paying too much or not enough attention. You know, you can't win. Um, and uh, you know that you know women would describe a long day at the switchboard just being like sworn at all day. Um, they also uh, the very first call, uh, public call boxes, the ones that predate the really famous you know red um, post office telephone boxes. You didn't actually have to put in money to contact the operator first. You could just pick up the phone. And for a while there, the public would, you know, members of the public would just pick up the phone and be like, I just saw an ambulance drive by. Do you know what's going on? Or do you know who won the boat race? Or, you know, like, and, and uh, I remember one of, one of these telephone offers, like, I felt like I was a walking newspaper. Um, and so, yeah, sort of feeling like that you were at the beck and call of the public, but also a, a public that was concerned about that their own information was somehow worth worth divulging, worth sharing, had some kind of value to it, and that telephone operators were going to be messing with you over it. Um, but it's also, it's also women had to bear the brunt of, again, it's a new technology, and there are problems with it. You know, wires are, you know, lines are being dropped. It is, and it's also, the telephone starts as private and then switches over into the public domain um, and that process is completed by 1912. But in the in the process of that happening, when you're also having make to make connections between private w- wires and the public and the post office uh, telephone wires, things get messy. And and it's of course, and this is to, to no surprise, it's it's the person on the phone who's going to get bear the wrath of a frustrated customer. And and women are right in the middle of that. Um, and and women really do come to dominate telephone switchboard operation very, very early on, um, really even in the 1880s. It's not like telegraphy where uh, you have men and women involved in it. it telephone switchboard work almost always uh, involved women by the, the late 19th century with some very interesting exceptions. That, like, for example, the Treasury's uh, uh, phone line, they, the Treasury uh, executives insisted that they have a man be the, the switchboard operator because they didn't think they could trust a woman with the business of the treasury. So there again, it's another example of how uh, the telephone was deeply gendered and there were a lot of anxieties around the kind of information that switchboard operators could be exposed to. I mean, but part of what we've been um, talking about and, and you know, a, a key part of the book is um, in some sense, the kind of everyday resistances to this Victorian project of, of liberal subjectivity, you know, and, and, and as, as you say, you know, the idea of a um, communications network that is obsessed with kind of, you know, privacy too much and too little listening also being used as a, you know, kind of casual uh, news service is, is one of those kind of classic um, sort of everyday stories of, of resistance to an overall, I guess, kind of, you know, quite, um, in some ways, all-encompassing uh, so- social structure that, that, that's going on around the individual operators. But at the very end of the book, and, and just thinking about um, how we, how we, you know, bring the, the conversation to a close, is a discussion of, I guess, much more sort of open forms of kind of rebellion and, and revolution. And obviously, you know, really famously, um, communications network is is a site for uh, rebellion in Ireland, um, but also throughout the book. Um, you know, you, you sort of highlight these moments of, you know, possible strikes and actual strikes and, and, and you know, rethinking the kind of the purpose of, of communications to to be more than just kind of everyday resistance and, and something a bit more, I guess, kind of revolutionary. So uh, are there any sort of 
elements of the book you, you want to pick out to to foreground that sense of rebellion and revolution rather than say everyday resistance yeah i mean it's i mean there there, there are all kinds of of small ways that telegraphists and telegraph boys and telephone operators are trying to um, assert their own agency. I mean, everything from uh, telegraph boys getting busted occasionally for putting their own buttons on their on their post office uniforms or, or you know, tweaking them in specific sartorial ways to um, full-on strikes. Um, in 1871, the first telegraphist strike occurred and it was actually much more organized out of Manchester than in London. Um, Unfortunately, uh, the strike organizers, uh, their wires had been tapped. Uh, London administrators had been monitoring uh, telegraphists using their own technologies to communicate with one another about the strike. And, and unfortunately, the strike was, was quickly put down. And telegraphists since then decided that as aspiring professionals, they couldn't resort to working class tactics like a strike. So that's actually going to be the last like full on um, what we, you know, strike that telegraphists engaged until after World War One, but they do involve some other. Uh, they do get involved with some other type of work protests. And in one one moment, they all refused to uh, stand up and cheer for a member of the royal family. So it was sort of like a silent office sit-in protest, which you know I think is particularly evocative in terms of these communications workers. Um, you have associations and. Um, uh, sort of auto and uh, learning societies uh, amongst the telegraphists that break out. And you also have women, uh, the telephone operators, creating their own associational life, their clubs, and working towards their own interests. But in the Edwardian era, right, you know, right before the First World War, we're going to see the idea of telecommunications and telecommunications work really get into some major um, uh, disruptions, exactly what happens at the Easter Rising um, in particular, but also telegraph telecommunications workers are going to get wrapped up in the fight over suffrage, um, and they're going to get wrapped up in the larger, uh, larger contestations over uh, the meaning of labor and you know the, and 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 the, the the growing power of organized labor in the early twentieth century. I mean, there's all uh, I guess there's all kinds of, of, of more things we, we we can talk about, and and indeed you know what one of the things that's so interesting in the book about the book is not just the kind of contemporary echoes, but um, I, I suppose the, the shame that you had to pick a moment to stop almost um, because you know it'd be fascinating to chart the uh, transformation as you, as you say of the communications network um, as as we go on into the twentieth century and obviously mm-hmm. beyond. And it, it does put me in mind of of a final question of you know what is your I guess kind of current project current set of interests. I mean, it seems a bit mean to be, you know, kind of uh, demanding another book from you immediately. But yeah, are, are you working on, you know, something more contemporary in terms of communications? Are you, you know, have you sort of set, settled your accounts with uh, Victorian London? What's uh, what's next for your work? Well, I'm actually, I'm going in two different directions, but both coming out of out of the work I've done here. So I am following the story of, of telecommunications in the 20th century in that I'm looking at uh, the early BBC. So I'm looking at um, the beginning of British broadcasting, and in particular, I'm looking at what was called the Talks Department and the early BBC. Um, so in 1927, this Talks Department is set up, and Talks is meant to be um, 
you might be familiar with the concept. Um, informative, educational, but entertaining, uh, factual broadcasting. Yeah. Um, that. And the person in charge of the stocks department was a woman called Hilda Matheson. And I'm interested in her for a number of reasons. Um, uh, not least is, is the fact that um, while she's developing her idea and her kind of theory of how to create a good talk, which for her really involves creating a, a feeling of intimacy, broadcast or the, the, the airwaves, so that every person listening to the radio feels like they're being personally spoken to. She's working those ideas out while having a full-on uh, love affair with the writer and novelist and poet Vita Sackville-West. And I'm interested in how the, the letters that survive from this relationship reveal how this crazy love affair between these two women informed the way Matheson thought about broadcasting. So that's one thing I'm going to be doing, and, I'm, and I've begun to do some work on that. The other thing I want to do, and this follows up and again with the service labor piece of, 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 the, of this book, I, I, I think there's so much more that needs to be done in terms of the history of service labor. And I'm beginning to look at um, uh, working women and men working in pubs. So I'm gonna, that's the other thing I'm, I'm looking at in terms of thinking of the service economy, thinking about hospitality, and thinking about um, how, again, how gender regimes and value and effective work play out uh, behind the bar. So those are the two two very different things, but both coming out of different um, aspects of, of this project. 